Hi, this is Tim and Dole. Welcome to Midwest Hunting and Outdoors by Two Dumbasses, a podcast about the outdoors, hunting, and being a steward of the land. Thank you for joining us for part two, Dr. Rachel Rudin, Iowa DNR wildlife veterinarian responsible for disease control. Enjoy the episode. You raised some other questions for me. So, and I, I don't know if I prepped you for these questions. So, so EHD takes how long to gestate? Okay. So yeah. So incubation time is what we talk about. Sure. Incubation. In diseases. Um, so so I think that this is actually a point where people don't realize. So with episodic hemorrhagic disease, the deer was bit by the midge about seven to 10 days before they ever show signs. Um, once they start showing signs, which could be, you know, breathing heavily, um, kind of like down out of it, um, you know, spending time in water because they're so feverish, um, within 36 hours, they tend to just completely, you know, go downhill and die. Um, so the first week, you know, that they have been exposed, the virus is, you know, replicating, amplifying within that animal. Other midges are able to then bite it, you know, that animal, pick it up, pick up the virus, and then, you know, spread it to other animals. Um, and you don't, it, you know, it's just kind of silent during that point. So it's incubating and you don't know, you know, which animals have been affected and which haven't. Um, but then they'll kind of rapidly decline um, over about a day and a half. So before we go into it, because you know I'm going to ask about CWD next. So, sure. So first off, I mean, as a hunter or a landowner, I got these darn midges that are around my pond or in my creek bed, et cetera. I'm in a drought. Do I go out and spray them? Do I, I mean, is there anything I can do? Not really. Um, it's kind of, it's a problem that is larger than any one, you know, landowner. So, okay. um, you know, it's, there's not really historically an effective way to manage for the disease. Um, and even, you know, with things like CWD, we want to collect carcasses that are positive, you know, get them off the landscape. Once the animal has died and its blood is, you know, no longer viable for the midge, it's not a risk to other, you know, deer, other animals, or other, you know, midges getting infected. So, um, you know, typically there's not, we'll record mortalities, um, you know, like if a landowner says, you know, I have 10 dead deer, but we won't necessarily do anything to, to take them off the landscape. Um, okay. All right. So let's go back to CWD. Okay. All right. So incubation time for CWD. Yeah. So... The incubation time, which is why another part of why this is such a complex, challenging disease to manage for, is once an animal has been exposed to the prion, it can take up to 16 months for them to show signs of disease. And so as short as 16 months, as long as three years. Um, so I mean, you, during this time, I guess I should say, mm -hmm. um, by three months, they can start shedding prion in their saliva. And by six months, they can start shedding it in their urine. So during this time, they're just, you know, spreading disease, uh, which is really why it is such a challenge um, to manage for. So 
I mean, in Iowa, we've had maybe two deer that, you know, weren't, didn't just seem like healthy, pristine animals. You know, one was found dead, um, but we were able to salvage a lymph node. And one, you know, I think had been hit by a car. So you don't know if that was because it was, you know, mentally inappropriate or it just happened to cross the road at the wrong time. Um, and that one tested positive for CWD. So for most of the time, you know, if you're a hunter and you're trying to, you know, select for a healthy deer, that deer is, you know, can have CWD and you wouldn't know it. Um, so once they start showing clinical signs, then you'll start seeing things like, you know, um, they're just not, you know, they lose their fear of humans. Um, they might be drooling. They kind of have a hunched back. Um, they just don't look quite right. And then as the name suggests, chronic wasting disease, they start wasting. So if you see skinny deer, I mean, we get tons of calls about skinny deer and rarely are those the deer that test positive um, for just that reason. You know, there's plenty of other things that can take a deer out before it actually reaches that end stage of disease, um, which could take up to three years. So for, you know, a deer to be on the landscape for three years. I mean, sometimes that's even remarkable in parts of Iowa. So. Wow. wow. Okay. So I'll, I'll just expand on, you know, the same question Tim asked about EHD for CWD as a landowner, as a hunter, what, uh, what can I do? What can we do to, you know, to, to help with this disease? Yeah. So, I mean, definitely if you do see deer that seem unhealthy to contact your you know, your local biologist, because we would like to get samples from those deer. So we kind of have different categories. So we have hunter harvest, where we get most of our samples for CWD testing. Then we have roadkill, um, which is just, you know, more random, opportunistic. Um, and then these target calls. So if we see or we hear about a deer that just looks, you know, like it's not doing well, that's really thin, um, maybe has some of those signs that we can't really rely on to, to identify our positives so far because um, we're pretty, pretty early in the course of this kind of disease being in Iowa. But, you know, those are animals that we want to hear about. So we will test these target cull animals. Um, and it's also, I mean, for my purposes, more broadly outside of the context of uh, managing CWD, I want to know what's causing, you know, sick and dead deer to show up on the landscape anyway. So for other disease concerns or other exposures, toxicities, that kind of thing. Yeah. So check my understanding of the, um, what, what are you, what are we, what's the state calling the, uh, you know, the 13 zones or the 16 zones, a special hunt um, yeah. for so CWZ zone DMZs, hunts, yeah. DMZs, disease management zones. So check my understanding if I understand this correctly. So there's certain zones in the state that I can apply as a hunter for all antlerless, are they antlerless tags? Do you know? Okay, a tag, a <laughs> yeah. tag in these zones. And um, the intent of this tag is I can go and shoot a deer in that zone. However, I need to get mandatory, it mandatorily tested for CWD. Yeah, okay. you're encouraged, highly encouraged to, to have us collect a sample. And, you know, after that, I mean, it's, that's it, right? That's the, the mandatory steps, if you will, right. in that process. Now, if it comes back positive, then you have a choice as an individual. Do I want to take the risk and eat this meat or do, should I dispose of it? Properly? Yeah, exactly. So if you were to 
to have a harvest test positive, we would contact you directly. Um, so, you know, if you've tested, if you've had your harvest tested before, you know, you log in, we have a portal on our website and you can test your harvest. But if, if we find out that, you know, an animal tests positive, we will contact you. So you will not, you know, we don't contact everyone, you know, if they're harvest test negative or not detected, but um, you'll hear from us for sure if you have a positive. And then if I, um, I've never done this before, so I need to understand is if I want to get my deer tested, what's the process? Do I, do I, can I do something and then send the material in or do yeah. I take it to a... So that's actually, eventually, that's what we, we want to happen. Um, is you know people who have a vested interest in having their harvest tested they're gonna since this disease is not going away um you know they're going to continue having this interest so we want to get you know partner with county conservation boards and individual hunters to be able to collect their own sample and you know either send it through us or um, send it for testing um but um until we're at that point um you can go to your local um, DNR unit office and um, sometimes they'll have special hours like so this is a new as of 20 December 2019 we started this hunter submission pathway um, so generally like those you know 7,000 deer that were tested last year that was part of our normal surveillance efforts so in every county we at least across the board, whether, you know, in DMZs, it's much higher. Uh, we have a much higher quota, but in every, any county, so even like Story, you know, Polk counties, we want 15 samples from, from all across the state. You know, that's just our baseline surveillance. Okay. Um, so you can definitely, you know, if you can be one of those 15 samples, then we're interested in your sample. But, you know, if you just want to test your deer because, you know, for peace of mind kind of thing, um, and we're, you know, beyond quota or outside of our quota. Now there's this pathway um, through the Iowa State Vet Diagnostic Lab to actually have your harvest tested. And it's the same charge that we, we get per sample, so $25, and you can have your harvest tested. Um, and of course, the quotas go up if you're in a DMZ. So if you're in Alamakee, you know, we're seeking, we tend to be seeking samples out. Um, to meet our quotas, so we you know have confidence in, in what we're tracking. So I should get a hold of my area biologist or take my deer to yeah. local DNR location. Yes, for yeah. the sampling to take place. And we we basically, I mean, for does, um, you know, for people who want you know to keep their antlers or you know for mounts, we work with taxidermists and that kind of thing because those are some of really high quality samples. Is a, a mature buck. Um, but for does, a lot of times people will just cut off the head, um, so just like beyond the jaw. Um, and that's, so the, what we target is the retropharyngeal lymph nodes, the medial retropharyngeal lymph node. And that's basically what swells up when you get a cold. Um, and so if you, you know, oftentimes we don't see the whole carcass, we just see like a head. Just the head, yeah. yeah. That makes it simpler, doesn't it? Yeah, mm -hmm. okay. yeah. and in, in a lot of our DMZs, we have things like drop boxes or, you know, check stations where you can just drop off your, your head. And we collect information like, you know, the location of your harvest because, you know, we want that fine scale spatial detail to know where our positives are coming from. Right. So, I mean, the majority of animals will test as not detected. 
Um, but for those positives, we want all that kind of really fine detail and also age and, and that kind of thing. So it sounds like, you know, I mean, that potentially could be a future episode in itself, just the whole testing process. And I mean, as as well as maybe even a how-to for to educate hunters on how to harvest those phalangeal... Uh, um, RPLNs. Yeah. <laughs> You know what I'm trying to say. You should right? just stop right there. <laughs> Those yeah. lymph nodes. Lymph nodes. Yeah. Lymph nodes. Lymph nodes. That, that satisfies. <laughs> I didn't know I was that horrible. Or even just go deer head. Just <laughs> deer heads. Well, I mean, I, I think we want to, I mean, it gets better than that, right? It's tough to send a deer head in the mail. Right. Yeah, well, right. and so there are other um, vet diagnostic labs that receive, you know, whole heads, but there's, it's much higher fee, you know, for disposal and those kinds of things. Um, and really... It's once you know what tissue to seek out, it's, it's, I mean, you, it's know, simple. you can get trained up pretty easily. Yeah, that's what probably, we want to hear. Probably yeah. pretty. We're trainable. Yeah. Trainable. I've proven And coachable. That. And so yeah. you told me a test, so I want to make sure I heard you right. Testing, the testing fee for an animal is $25? $25 if you're beyond our normal, you know, surveillance cool. efforts. So, you know, historically we kind of were providing multiple services. So we were looking for samples for our normal surveillance efforts, mm -hmm. but then people started, you know, wanting, you know, hearing about, learning about CWD and wanted to get their harvest tested. So we started accommodating many more samples. And at some point, you know, that takes away from our ability to also manage for the disease if we're still surveilling for it. Sure. Um, so in kind of the partnership that we hope to curate with our hunters is, you know, if you're interested and you're not in one of our kind of priority areas, um, we encourage you to get tested, you know, to have your harvest tested. But here's a pathway to do it um, that doesn't put that burden back on us. Yeah, I mean, because you think about our, so it's 7,300 some deer that we tested, right, last year. Mm -hmm. So 7,300 times the $25, right? Do the math. Yeah. And then... But you look at, I mean, to expand that testing is pretty prohibitive, especially when you think about the deer hunting license. The deer hunting license is those fees pay for the state of Iowa's Department of Natural Resources budget, right? So, yeah. so A, I need hunters to, I'm just processing this, right? I need hunters to hunt and buy their tags. Right, so that it can continue to fund all the rest of the wildlife, plus the testing and management to keep all these hunting populations viable. Right. Did I get that right? Right. Yeah, and I mean, the need is growing, so there'll be more areas. You know, last year we picked up four counties um, that had, or four new counties that had uh, free-ranging deer test positive. So, you know, as our kind of geographic areas of priority expand, um, we're not getting the same value from all of the samples um, over time. So, you know, starting to kind of tease out what, what we need to actually manage for the disease versus what is providing that service to hunters that are, you know, interested in the human health concerns. Sure. Part. All right. So I got to go back one more thing and then I want to talk sure. about some, maybe some contentious things, right? Okay. So... <laughs> These, these malformed proteins, these prions, um, how hard are they to get rid of? Could I just scorch the earth and get rid of them? So 
with an incinerator above 1,000 degrees Celsius or Fahrenheit, <laughs> you can you can deactivate them. Um, thousand degrees. Mm-hmm. So what about 600 degrees? Not consistently or reproducibly. <laughs> so this is the the prions, which is why you know, and it's not a time thing. So I mean. I mentioned that prions from Scrapey um, were still infectious 16 years later. That's just because it had been 16 years since the property had been, um, you know, depopulated. That's not because, it, you know, 17 years they suddenly, you know, stopped being effective. Um, it's just that we're not out that far yet. So, um, you know, the longevity is a real issue. The infectivity, the infectiousness, um, that seems very robust to degradation from the environment. So heat, you know, cold, all that kind of stuff, um, and chemical um, deactivation. So there was a study last year that found um, five minutes. So it was just using a metal coil. So trying to approximate what like um, a blade, you know, like a, a hunting knife might, might be like. Um, it was just a metal coil that they dipped in infectious material. Um, and they deactivated prions using 40% bleach um, for five minutes. So, but I mean, 40% bleach is pretty caustic uh, concentration. So, and I mean, that's, you know, once you've gotten all the organic debris out, so you don't have the blood and, and where's that going? And, you know, trying to track all those different components once it's been contaminated with prion. So um, it's a very hardy um, disease causing agent. Yeah. So, the reason I was kind of coming through this is, is uh, it's equip, right? Equips where we we do these prescribed forest burns. It's not like where yep. we're burning down our trees. We're just burning sure. stuff on the ground, right? And trying to kill, uh, you know, undergrowth, and undergrowth and stuff, and, and trying to rehabilitate the forest. So I was just trying to think in my head: is that an option to where, hey, if I did an equip uh, partnering with the state? and burned my forest with help. Please don't go out by yourself and burn forests. It can get out of hand in a hurry. Uh, go out with that help in mitigation. That's the things I'm thinking about. So, you know, I've had conversations about this too. And while it may not deactivate the prion, it might make it less accessible. So if a deer, you know, or a carcass or whatever the contamination was, is just on the surface, um, you know, it's much more readily accessible to another deer. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's under a whole bunch of debris, underbrush, um, you know, burnt remains from your forest, um, that makes it less accessible to animals. So um, those are definitely conversations like um, even tilling. Like if a deer like in, in Iowa, where we have so much ag, um, just normal tilling you know, activities and things like that that are just turning over the soil. So it's not just sitting on the surface sure. available. So, I mean, that's a hard thing to, to tease out because, you know, a deer might be shedding prion, you know, over so large a swath of land for so many years that um, it's hard to know <laughs> to be able to track that. But um, all those kinds of things, you know, one day might prove that um, it actually does, you know, lower the risk or make it less accessible, that kind of thing. You know, one thing, we had Jeremy Cochran. Uh, he was a state forester who kind of educated us on equip. And uh, the one thing that kind of stuck with me still is, hey, 
The answer is, is to do nothing, right? To do nothing is the worst thing you can possibly do, right? So as I'm sitting here thinking about stuff I need to do with my forest anyway, to do nothing, maybe, maybe it makes sense to do that. Now, I understand that these cervids could travel huge swaths of land, and I am very one small segment, but to do nothing is nothing. Right. Negative. Yep. So, Rachel, is that the recommendation then for for um, hunters when they harvest a game and they process the meat is to bury the bones then or to bury the... What what is I guess what is the yeah, recommendation? Yeah, so our gold standard kind of disposal technique is to send to a landfill. Okay. Um, and that's so specifically, and this is sometimes hard to know, a clay lined landfill because prions like to absorb or adsorb to clay, <laughs> um, so it kind of keeps it out of the filtrate kind of that's coming out of that landfill. Um, but yeah, so I mean. You know, burying is better than just leaving them lay on the ground. But um, ideally, you you know, as long as your um, municipal landfill is accepting deer carcasses, which most of them do um, in Iowa, um, yeah, that would be our recommendation. And that's where we ultimately would send like a positive carcass if a hunter you know decides to dispose of it. Um, it would go to landfill. Hmm. So back to these contentious little issues, right? So, um, and I recognize that these are going to be contentious, right? So just FYI. Sure. So <laughs> nothing I haven't heard before. I know we don't want I mean, we want to contain the spread of this disease, right? I mean, the best we can do that, the better, right? right. So we go out to any sporting goods store, you're going to find all these, these deer lures, these you're going to see these deer lures where it's going to have doe estrus. You're going to see this buck lure all made from urine. Mm -hmm. And what I've heard from you is, hey, they, they can start shedding these folded prions, prions uh, up to six months after they contract the disease, if I heard you correctly. Mm -hmm. Right? So why would we as a state then allow these lures in the state? Right. Um, I mean, it's a great question. There are definitely states that um, either have banned lures and scents altogether, or they require it to come from things like the, um, the ATA, the Archery Trade Association. Um, they have a deer protection program um, where products are you know, certified as coming from a herd that's enrolled in a CWD um, program. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, products that are coming out of the captive industry, they have a lot greater um, ability to, um, you know, manage for the disease because if they find a positive, you know, you can depopulate that facility um, and you can trace it, you know, wherever those animals went to, you can find those facilities and, and depopulate them. We're at a disadvantage in that a free-ranging herd, you know, if a deer comes down, you know, positive from Wisconsin and comes into Iowa, we can't trace it back. You know, we don't have that um, capacity. So, um, you know, I think that products coming out of the captive industry, um, if done properly and with the, the proper, you know, oversight and, um, you know, cooperation, that they, I don't see a fundamental problem with them, um, but I would want to see, you know, a product coming out of a CWD certified herd, that kind so, of thing. So do we do that? Do we have that uh, for the state of Iowa? Is that in place? Yeah, so it's a voluntary program. Um, there's kind of different 
tiers or levels where there's USDA herd certification and then IDEL, so Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship, they also have a CWD herd certification program. And a lot of it's very similar, um, but basically um, it requires, you know, testing of, of any deer that dies in the facility, that animal gets tested um, for CWD and, um, you know, regulates the movement in and out of the herd. Um, animals coming into the state have to come from a, a herd that's been, you know, monitored for at least five years. So, I mean, there's definitely oversight. Um, unfortunately, just the movement of deer itself is just, it's a concern. And, you know, because they can be positive and remain asymptomatic um, during that long incubation period, um, you know, until it's dead and tested, I, you know, exactly what your confidence is in that um, status is, um, you know, I think a little bit up in the air. Yeah, my confidence is low after hearing that. Too. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> voluntary means... Soon as I hear none. Yeah. I mean, Low, it's, low. Maybe none's probably not quite right, but low. Most herds in the state, because, you know, they're, they're for-profit kind of enterprises, to do anything with those deer or to move them from their facility, they have to be in this program. So it really... It does make it incumbent on you know a captive deer producer to participate, and it's really in their best interest. So ultimately, you know, a lot of um, I think there's a lot of kind of controversy between captive and wild deer kind of you know parties um, about you know blaming the other. And at the end of the day, we're all affected by it. You know, no cervid is is unsusceptible to the disease. So. Sure. You know, managing the disease appropriately and responsibly is in the best interest of, of anyone, whether you're a captive or, you know, a state agency managing a, a wild resource. I, I mean, I know this is this isn't my place and I don't have the data. I'm more of an absolute just because I want to, I mean, just like you. Uh, but it almost feels like, I mean, a zero tolerance. There should be a zero tolerance for uh, contamination in, uh, in the captive herd. Otherwise, I mean... I'm not gonna let I'm not gonna let any product in to get on my ground. I mean, because these these hunters. I mean, I've just I mean I've I've done it myself. I don't do it today, but I've done it myself. I mean, they're gonna take that urine and you know where they're gonna do it. They're gonna squirt it in a scrape, right? Which is oh by the way, hey, that's where they're gonna congregate, right? Or they're gonna they're gonna spray it on the ground somewhere. Some people might put it in a bottle for scent, but a lot of people are spraying it on the ground. And uh, from what I'm hearing, that's bad. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess in the grand scheme of everything, the concentration that's in urine, I mean, it's a lower risk material than, say, a positive infected carcass. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of, you know, legislation that would be required to actually push some of these, you know, agenda items forward, that, sure. you know, protect or provide greater protection to our resource in Iowa. Um, you know, carcass movement is a higher risk kind of category than, you know, urine lures, just because of the, the volume of urine that would be used and, you know, the likelihood that it is even coming from a positive animal, things like that. So um, while I would like to see it, you know, not being used unless it's from one of these, you know, highly regulated um, sources, mm -hmm. um, there's there's kind of bigger fish to fry okay. in the matter, um, and you know just getting people educated on CWD that it is a 
a real um, like tangible threat <laughs> to our resource, I think is like the first part, which is why um, this is a great outlet <laughs> yep. to be educating your audience. Through. Yep, including <laughs> us, including us. So, including so us. I do have a couple more. All right, so we okay. talked we talked uh, deer lures. So now let's talk about mineral blocks. I know that the mineral blocks or salt blocks. I know the state, you know, from a DNR perspective, is advocating hey. Don't feed the deer. One, the other two is, is mineral blocks and and salt blocks. So, I got a question for you on that. Okay. So, where I live, lots of cattle farmers. I mean, predominantly cattle farmers, and I know they have mineral blocks. They have these big tubs of these molasses blocks and stuff. I think it's reasonable to assume the deer know where those are at too, right? Because they commiserate with the with the cattle. So that stated, what difference does it make if if I put out a mineral block, whereas all my neighbors have them out anyway? Right. Help me out there. I mean, it's a great question. Um, you know, we can only do as much as, you know, we have control over. So there's certain risks that you can't mitigate. Like, um, you know, you can't remove every mineral block from the state yeah, of Iowa. Yeah. Um, but... You know, if you're kind of curating a, a deer-friendly kind of habitat, you know, if you have an acreage and you're, you know, trying to recruit high-quality, you know, bucks and does and that kind of thing, sure, um, they don't need the mineral block. So just a, a, a very, you know, basic um, answer is that you're not actually providing them, like, that's not what's going to drive their quality, is that particular mineral block. So why incur the risk, you know, of congregating deer on your landscape? Um, you know, I think, especially with those habitat features that, you know, it makes it different than, you know, cattle pasture, that you're recruiting deer and then you're, you're giving them a nidus for infection. So you're giving them a place where, you know, there's studies that look, have looked at mineral blocks and, you know, can retrieve prion, infectious prion from that mineral block. Mm -hmm. So like, why give the disease any kind of head start in your area? You know, you don't want, that's not the kind of deer that you're trying to get is a wasted deer. So, you know, at a very basic level, you know, they don't need it and you're not doing a service to the population by having it. Um, you know, the risk is not worth the, the small amount of, you know, reward. Benefit. Yeah. Okay. All right. That makes so, sense to me. You buy it? Yeah. No, no, no. I mean it. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Right? I mean, mineral licks is, is one particular aspect, but, you know, um, bait sites or supplemental feeding, you know, just historically, beyond the context of CWD um, and other species and other diseases, just congregating animals at such a high density, um, you know, it almost asks, it's like you've set up the perfect um, context for disease to, to break out. So now, I wasn't going to go down this path, but I'm going to. So, you know, you take a state like Texas, right? So I've got some friends down there, and everybody has, everybody feeds their deer, has feeders. Sure. It's, it's legal down there, to yeah. my understanding. And... You know, and I've challenged them on that as far as, hey, it doesn't seem very sporting. And, and their answer to me is, hey, if I didn't feed them, I would have zero deer, right? And then, so we have discussions about CWD as well. 
And I said, well, you're congregating, you're more at risk. And their answer to me is, well, let me take a devil's advocate. Hey, I'm congregating my deer, so I have my, I have my uh, feeders out. And again, I'm, now I have a captive deer population that knows where the food's at and they're going to go. They're going to go, they're going to travel less because they have everything they need on my property. What's your thoughts on that? I mean, deer biology would be a good argument, you know, like natal dispersal. That's something that's pre-programmed in, like a buck does not want to stay where its doe, uh, or, you know, came from. So it's going to leave <laughs> that area. Really? Um, you're going to export, you know, whatever diseases might have been circulating in your local population, you're exporting it now to some other area. Um, which I mentioned only because that's another kind of management technique sure. with antlerless harvest is you reduce the does. You know, if you're in a disease management zone and you actually reduce the does, you'll kind of keep the the bucks from dispersing as far. And that's been proven in other contexts. Um, and it was used in, you know, for managing tuberculosis, bovine tuberculosis in white-tailed deer in Michigan. So, um, you know, there's certain... Um, there's certain other aspects that you're not going to break out. Like, you don't have a captive herd. It's not a closed herd, you know, that wouldn't meet any kind of standards um, by any sort of captive deer industry. So, so yeah. Um, I think, you know, they're not experiencing the repercussions yet. But if CWD walks into their property and they have that, that, you know, it's just a matter of time where you have a, a local, you know, very high prevalence event. Okay. Thank you. Rachel, is that, um, is that the presumption then that most CWD spread between deer to deer is through um, the saliva? Yeah, so nose to nose um, would be, so any, like nasal secretions, that kind of thing, okay. looking through the fence, or, or, you know, if there is a fence. Yeah. Um, or, you know, bucks licking a licking branch or, yeah, you know, that's yeah, kind of exactly. the normal. Um, and that's why, you know, in terms of like we're most likely to find um, disease, like who you want to test is a, a mature buck because they're having the most interactions with other does. They're like licking, you know, urine and um, and combating with other males. So you know, high ex uh, exertion kind of activities where you know there's lots of breathing and respiratory droplets being transmitted. Um, so I mean, it falls in the same pattern as other kind of infectious diseases um that deer have like i mentioned bovine tuberculosis which kind of brings up a question is uh statistically is there a, is there a difference between cwd um contraction in bucks versus those meaning if it took all of the cases known right is what's percentage of so it's it's more of a temporal kind of trend so if you have a disease in the area, you're most likely to first find it in a buck, just because of that number of interactions it has. But once it's it, once the disease is established in an area, anything becomes susceptible. So, um, you know, does will eventually get exposed, you know, either directly through, you know, buck interaction or um, maybe environmental exposure. And then a lot of people... Um, don't really think about fawns, but fawns can be exposed. Um, it's just that they don't, you know, if you harvest uh, a fawn, um, it hasn't been alive long enough to really um, accumulate prion, so, or to even be exposed to prion. So it's not that there's any class, uh, demographic class that is, you know, um, low risk. It's just 
like the likelihood of it actually, you know, having enough time on the landscape or the proper context. So naive question here again, name of the show, right? Two dumbasses, but are, so is that? I mean, is is it pass through breeding then? Yeah. So, um, there is a paper out from this year that um, found peons and semen. Um, there's a a study that was out of Colorado looking at so. A lot of times you get maybe like unusual um, kind of laboratory <laughs> species. So this was actually a mud jack deer. Um, so I'm sorry, what? A mud jack deer. Mud jack. Mud jack. Mud jack. <laughs> yeah. So a really small deer, and they did a vertical transmission study, and they were able to find it in the placenta and in the fawn. Um, but that same work hasn't been replicated in white-tailed deer. There is some work that's ongoing to evaluate that. Um, so it's kind of a like question mark slash don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that to me, it's in all the secretions. So if it's uh, a mature, you know, a doe that has given birth, even if it doesn't pass through the placenta, because um, there's lots of things in, in ruminants that don't pass, like antibodies and that kind of thing, um, it can get into the milk. So um, I would think that's just like the easier, almost rude exposure of a naive fawn. Um, being born to a positive doe, even if they don't get exposed in the womb, they get exposed after. Um, and you know, doe's licking bonds and you know, just all that saliva exposure. Yeah. So, um, wow. So with that, let's let's continue down that thread a little bit. So, high fence operations, pens, as we were just talking about, you know, bucklers and, and deer doors, sure. which is where these come from. So. My understanding is Kiyosakwa, Fairfield area, there was a pen farm. Um, are you aware of one down Brina? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that there were a couple positives. One or two positives. I can't say how many for sure. Um, so, is it confirmed? Is that confirmed? You mean from, from this past, like... Past year. Yeah. Past 12 months. All yeah. right. So, I just want to make sure it wasn't a myth. <laughs> so, because uh, you know how rivers travel. Sure. So, with that, my understanding is is this this pen farm, and I just passed one up in Mount Vernon, by the way. So that's a whole other story. But single fence, they have a single fence around the perimeter of the farm, and I know deer are super social, and especially when they start to go into ruts and you know brings in brings in uh, the the native deers into the captive deers. If I have a single fence, pretty easy for them to communicate sure. however they want to, right? They just don't be saliva is a big deal, right? So why, why do we as a state allow that? I mean, if we're going to allow pen farms, which I don't have a problem, I don't have anything against pen farms, but let's make the necessary precautions to stop transmittal. Sure. Right? So, and I will say, you know, um, like captive deer, um, those fall under IDELS, you know, oversight, but we have what? What? IDELS, um, so the Department of Ag. Okay. Um, so they manage the captive deer populations. Um, but we, so we have, you know, DNR, Iowa DNR has both the free-ranging, you know, wild deer, and then also hunting preserves. So we manage hunting preserves and, you know, permit them and license them. Sure. Um, and it's the same issue on both sides. So fence operations. Right. Because like um, you need to have a fence. Um, and 
you know, I think a lot of the legislation was written before, you know, chronic wasting disease was was definitely was in Iowa. Um, so, you know, it's not ideal. Um, a double fence would definitely be um, an asset. <laughs> and it would protect both the, the operator or the producers, you know, stock, and then also our stock, you know, in the wild here. So, um, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, their risk for contaminating us. We're just as much a risk for sure. contaminating them. Absolutely. Um, so that being said, yeah, I mean that's a definite weak point that if an operation, um, either a hunting preserve or a captive operation were to come up positive, there is that risk of exposure in the area, and that's why we, you know, uh, in our surveillance kind of maps, we increase surveillance around those areas. So for you know up to to five and more years after that population or that facility has been depopulated um, because we, we're aware that it's a, a risk for exposure to the, the local wild population. So I don't want to put you in a tough spot and I'm like, okay, so sure. and, and <laughs> you can back out on this one, okay? But from a listener perspective then, would it behoove us then to write to our legislators to close that gap? Again, it's a contentious spot. I, I know we're a political, I mean, they, you're in a, yeah. tend to be in a political role. So right. you can take a political stance on that. I'll be okay. All right. Sure. Um, I think that it's important to identify weaknesses and, you know, garner support for issues that you find important <laughs> for right. protecting your locals, your herd. All right. Thank you. You know? Right. So, um, and I will say, I'll just, because you didn't even mention this, so double fence, that's that's one thing. That's That would be great, I think, on all sides. Um, but, you know, it's an expense. So who's covering that expense? The producer that was already, you know, grandfathered in and has had this establishment for years and years. Um, that's a real issue, um, you know, since it's not a requirement. Um, but also... Currently, the requirement is an eight-foot fence. We know the deer can jump over that. So a 10-foot fence is pretty standard. That's gold standard for, for deer operations. Um, so really, a double 10-foot fence would be, like, ideal. Um, but, you know, we're working within our um, certain restrictions and, and abilities. So um, and I will say on the... the captive or the preserve side, you know, there is a the capacity to intervene. When you have a positive facility, you can depopulate that. Um, when you have a positive in the wild, you have very little, you know, yep. tools to actually do yeah, any I was kind of thinking of uh, the scenario there. I mean, to me, that's a much more manageable situation than wildlife in general. Yeah, you have an identified risk, you address that risk, um, but the any ramifications to the wild population will persist. You know, it, you know if you go out, the, out in, let's say, food manufacturing, the food industry, you have a food industry and you already come to them and they say, hey, you've got an identified risk, USDA, FDA, whatever, you have an identified risk and they have a solution, identified solution for that. You know who bears the brunt on those costs? Producer, the industry. Industry bears the brunt, not the state, not the government. It's they've got to get a gap in their system. So, in my book, why would you have for for pen deer 
I wouldn't have any different rules. If they want to be in that industry, that's 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 the answer for staying in business. Like sure. So. I mean, a lot of these issues, I mean, as CWD increases in Iowa, which based on the trajectory of every other state is bound to happen, you know, like these issues will come more to the forefront um, and, and need better solutions. So we've kind of already kind of touched a little bit on interstate, intrastate transport of animals. I don't think we need to go through that. Um, so I have one last question before we go into our little bonus question we're going to have for you that I did not prep you for. Um, next five to ten years, what can we expect from a CWD perspective? It's a, I think that's probably the most interesting question because of where we are at our disease timeline. Um, you know, Wisconsin and Illinois, they're 10 years ahead of us. So we kind of know what different management techniques, um, how they played out in those states. And, um, you know, everyone's just learning as we go. Um, but I think at this point, it's my feeling, maybe, you know, very optimistically, that we're still at a point where we we have these very localized, defined areas where we know that there's CWD, that we still have the ability to intervene and actually affect change in those areas, um, rather than watch, like passively watching it just, you know, take over the state. Um, I think that that means that we, we have to, and we are transitioning into more of a management style. So instead of, you know, we know where it exists now. Um, a lot, for a while, we've been kind of surveilling, monitoring where, where it is. Now we're pretty confident that we know where it is and it's time to actually, um, you know, try to contain reduced populations locally. And that's where that, those localized, um, kind of like block hunt style within the DMZ. So, just very discrete areas where we know that there have been, you know, year after year, a positive animal coming off the landscape. I think, and using hunters as a tool, um, that would be kind of novel um, in terms of what other states have done. Um, trying to avoid using, you know, sharpshooters or, a, you know, kind of government mandated call. I don't think that's where we want to go. And I think that Iowans are pretty reasonable and receptive to, um, to where we've gone so far. So I think just we need to just keep support and kind of raise awareness of why this is an issue to be concerned about, um, that it's not, you know, made up or someone else's problem, it's gonna be our problem. Sure. And it's, you know, time is really of the essence ultimately because right now I think, you know, that's still manageable. But if we kind of sit back, just let it go for, you know, another five, ten years, we might find ourselves in a very much more concerning situation. So Yeah, so I think when you hit on the awareness and education of the public, I have one more question, and of, uh, you know, the hunters especially, I think is absolutely critical. I know like in Wayne County when they had, uh, when they had a finding, you guys had informational and education uh, sessions with them. Right. Uh, I think that's absolutely pivotal and helping to decide, hey, what's the plan? Right, so uh, so before I before we get to our bonus question and ask Joel if he's got any others, um, why is CWD important to the non-hunting public? Yeah, I mean, so you know, a lot of what 
like supplemental feeding is because people like seeing deer in their backyard. They want to see like healthy deer. Um, and a lot of times people conflate, you know, lots of deer with healthy deer, uh, which is really bad from a disease management standpoint. Um, but, you know, people who, you know, I know there's tons of people who are in a family that consumes venison. So, you know, you might be personally, you know, at risk of exposure through that, even if you're not personally harvesting that animal. Um, if you like seeing healthy deer in your backyard, your front yard, or anywhere, um, you know, that's that's another angle at it because, like we talked about, population declines and, and risks to the, the overall herd health. And I think that another thing that is, you know, we know that um, hunters in some some ways in some places are a dying breed that there's less um retention uh, of the hunting public so you know on another like kind of really out there angle without hunters like if we don't manage this disease appropriately and people no longer want to hunt the, the animal because they are concerned that there's infection or we don't have the proper tools to you know manage the the herd appropriately if we lose hunters then there's all kinds of other um, Sequela, like, you know, increased automobile collisions and just all kinds of other things. Like, hunters are a great tool for, for managing this population. So, I think in so many different ways, it all ties into, like, we need to manage this, the herd, um, and manage this disease. And there's, like, myriad angles you come at it from. that You don't have to be a hunter. I'm not a hunter, but <laughs> you've heard me ramble on for, like, two hours about this disease. Um, and... You know, I just think the thought of like, and with the, you know, I haven't spent much time in Iowa, but I know that it's a white tail state and it's like trophy bucks are a thing. So the thought of, you know, losing that class of, you know, really unbelievable, like quality bucks because of a disease that was mismanaged or, you know, not managed effectively is, would be a shame. And that's what, us as a nation are really facing, so um, I feel like I'm getting impassioned, but um, yeah, I mean, I just, I care about this disease because I don't want to see sick apples on the landscape, so. We're with you. Yeah. We're totally with you. So, uh, Joel, you Yeah, Rachel, I don't have any questions, but I want to, you know, thank you before Tim asked you the final question here, but thank you for all your time and sure. knowledge and expertise on this topic. It's been great. Yeah, thank you for sharing your platform. <laughs> so, lastly, we ask all of our guests um, one last question, and uh, so we're going to ask you, hey, what's a dumbass moment that you've had, and you're obviously not a hunter, but when I say a dumbass moment, something that's crazy, freaky that happened to you, whether it be hiking, out uh, watching wildlife, bicycling, whatever, you want to share with the guests that uh, might be funny, you know, that you think of? I, well, this will just be my little plug for Soundmenders, because they're <laughs> my personal favorite. <laughs> we saw a picture. <laughs> <laughs> my personal favorite uh, Iowa species, uh, Tiger Salamander. Um, so every year I go out, or I've started this tradition for the past three years, um, going out to um, Voss Nature um, area. Um, out in Minburn, Iowa, 
and um, there is like the great tiger salamander migration in October. Um, and this year, so a lot of times it's, it's pretty cool. Like it's, it's an October day and it's like kind of wet and you know, rainy and uh, that's when you get like a nice pulse of activity. And um, this year I had one. So I'm always like with my camera, you know, macro, like taking all kinds of pictures. And it like flagged its tail this time. It like curled up in this tiny little ball and it flagged its little tail over its head. And it was just usually, you know, they kind of like walk on you. They're not like that personable. I mean, I find them personable, but I'm a salamander enthusiast. But this one just like flagged its tail and I screamed like audibly for everyone to hear. Now, how big um, so the tiger salamanders, they're like, they're an impressive species. So we feel like that, um, like nose to tail. So, I mean, they're, they're sizable. You see them on a road and you're like, that's a little dragon crossing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, maybe that's more of a plug for salamanders. That's that okay. Way. That's all, it's all good. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, are they endangered or no? Um, they, they're a declining species. Um, there hasn't been much like survey work into why that is or what's mitigating that. So um, I do believe they, they qualify as a species of greatest conservation need in Iowa, so. Okay, I've never seen one, yeah. Yeah, there's stories I'll hear from like field staff, things about, you know, that they would leave like the garages at the units open and they would just pile in and that they don't see that anymore. So I mean, I think there's something going on and if I could somehow become a salamander vet, <laughs> <laughs> that would be like fulfilling, but a very personal dream. So. Well, uh, I want to close and say, just as Joel said, we're we are honored to have you, and uh, I love your passion speech. I mean, and I'm looking forward to seeing taking you taking that passion and applying it to your job. I think I, the state of Iowa is lucky to have you. Yeah. Thank so thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. So in our closing, as we do with every podcast. Be safe, be safe, have, have fun, and get, get outdoors. outdoors. Thanks for listening or watching our show. We have some exciting topics and guests coming up. We ask that you subscribe to our channel on YouTube and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We look forward to hearing your suggestions for topics, questions, and comments. This is Two Dumbasses signing off. Until next time. Be safe, have, have fun, fun, and, and get, get outdoors. outdoors.